Welcome to a pivotal moment in tennis history, a moment we are living and witnessing right now. Today, we stand on the brink of a revolution, not just in how the game is played, but how it's understood. Five years ago, when we embarked on this project, we anticipated changes, but what's unfolding is far more dramatic and more powerful than we ever imagined. Gone are the days of solely relying on impressionistic methods and the opinions of tennis gurus. We are now in an era where every shot, every point, and every strategic decision is transformed by the unyielding power of data analytics. This isn't just a change, it's a seismic shift that is redefining the very essence of tennis as we know it. As we experience these monumental changes firsthand, we invite you to join us on this groundbreaking journey. Together, let's discover how data analytics is not just influencing, but revolutionizing the world of tennis. So the Arts of Winning is brought to you by Sterling Strother and Dan Travis. This podcast is dedicated to shedding light on the new era of tennis. It looks at the completely new areas and realms of possibility that this era presents us with. Primarily, we examine the battles that will be fought as the player develops competitive intelligence. We ask you to subscribe to the podcast, both on the channels, Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, and subscribe directly to us by visiting www.artofwinningtennis.com. We can help you negotiate your way around this tremendously exciting new era in tennis. Good evening, everyone. Here we are, the official book launch, The Art of Winning Tennis book is now out in Kindle and in paperback. What a day it's been. Thanks to everyone who's bought it. I'm really pleased. I'm sure you are too, Sterling. It's it's really good. We've got a lot of months working um, on my Amazon marketing skills and, and, and it worked. We're right up there and I hope that's going to last for a long time. So yeah, thanks to everyone. If you haven't bought it yet, just do it because it's... Um, in the next 40 minutes, we're going to introduce this idea because, look, let's face it, no one knows what we're talking about yet, Sterling, really. I mean, okay, we've got, we've, got, um, we, we've got a small group that we've been working with, but we've not had anyone. This is the first time it's gone live, so this is quite a big thing. And that's what I want to kind of present this book as being. This is, this is a kind of a challenge to what we call traditional tennis culture. and. That is never, I, no one uses that term. So it's a new term to everyone. And hopefully over the next uh, 40 minutes or so, we can, we can look at that and perhaps pull it apart a little bit and show really what our attempt has been to counter what we call uh, traditional tennis culture and its effects. And I think there's a certain way that tennis is presented. In order to be a good tennis player, for example, you need to have great, if not these spectacular shots. Perhaps, and this is more subtle, you you need to hit winners to win. Am I right, Sterling? I mean, that's 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 a summary of somehow yeah. really where where 
thinking is and the way that tennis is presented. So it's presented as a sport where the dramatic and the the kind of spectacular is what we should all be chasing. And making errors in tennis is your enemy. Okay? <laughs> Error. It's, it's, a, it's a bad and a terrible thing. It's really bad, isn't it? You know, I mean, the guilt that we all feel. Oh, I made a mistake. Oh, that's so bad. In traditional tennis thinking, in order to prevent errors, what you have to do is make sure your technique is sound and it doesn't break down before your opponents. That's roughly how it goes. So I've got to be technically sound with my shots. And shots near the margins of the court, they're good. And preferably ones that are hit away from your opponent, you know, to the extremes there. And in order to do this, in order to accomplish these, these feats of excellence, what you need to do is lots of repetition, rallying, and a bit more repetition. So you need to do lots of it. There's a quantity development of all this. I think it's that approach that we think uh, forms the core of traditional tennis culture. And this concept of traditional tennis culture forms the essential part of the book. And to my knowledge, it's the first time that it's been described in this way. Before we go any further here, I wanted to talk to you, Sterling, about how the book does something different from other books on tennis that have been released. And I think with other books, we've noticed that things become separated. So you have the book on movement, then you've got the book on sorry movement and fitness and the book then on technique and then you've got the books on psychology you know the mental side of the game and they've been separated and i argue in the book along with yourself that we, i know i think i think we've managed to integrate them so we're looking at the, the, the way things are perceived the language we use and the thought running through and then around that we have we have movement. That look, that's gonna sound a bit weird to most people right now because it's the book. So what we've done is we're saying, look, those things, that, that movement, uh, technique, and psychology, we've integrated those. To separate them is problematic. And that's what that's what I wanted to come to you first with, Sterling. What damage do you think the separation of the say the mental, the physical, and the technical and so on does? I think the, f- the first thing that I've been able to notice, and this started back in 2011, so 12 years ago, the first thing I noticed that it, it causes an ex- a disconnect between why am I moving in a certain way and why am I practicing that movement? And then how am I hitting the ball? Why I'm practicing how I hit the ball. And there's this disconnect between that and then why, okay? Why am I doing this? And then the practice court has been in part of this, and we were caught up in, I mean, we're a part of traditional tennis culture, but we're trying to sort of separate ourselves and sort of disconnect ourselves from the traditional mindset that's there, that's prevalent. In trying to provide context, for what, how you hit the ball to why you hit the ball that way. And then what are the impending results of that or the, or the consequences of that? So I think the damage that 
is there when you separate them and you can't, I mean, there's nothing wrong with separating and talking about. And the problem is though, it sort of eliminates the problem solving ideas that you have to go through. Right. So, so if I'm on the practice court and I'm just practicing my forehand down the line, then forehand cross court, and I'm maybe doing a sequence there. The question is though, I'm practicing this and the ball's not coming back to me, right? If 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 I'm being fed by a coach, yeah, hand fed or, or racket fed, and I'm practicing these shots, or even if I'm practicing my serve by myself, the yes. shot's not coming back. And so the context of me hitting that ball a certain way. And the consequence that I'm going to re- have to receive that back is not there. And so there's a mental and emotional problem there that I, ha- I have to interpret how to actually get to that next ball and why am I going to get there? And then what am I going to do next? And so when you separate them to sort of exclusivity of each other and you don't bring them together, and try to merge them and practice them together and talk yes. about that. It's 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 extremely problematic, and and because you can you can become very frustrated mentally, emotionally, because you you feel like your forehand is breaking down in a, in the match, but you haven't identified when it broke down in the point. Like what shot? What shot did it break down on in the sequence of the points? Was it the first forehand you hit after the serve? Was it the second one? Were you going back to the forehand? Were you running to the forehand? Like there's so the so the context provides the bridge between how to actually deal with it mentally and emotionally. Yeah, I mean we're going we're going to be discussing that the the context, and it's something that we use consistently and and um, throughout the book, and I think. It's something that we're introducing with the idea of competitive intelligence as opposed to the traditional tennis thinking approach, this context. Look, what I wanted to point out, really, based on what you've just said, is that we've integrated the the, the cognitive and the movement. I, I, I argue that like the movement is cognitive. Everything, you know, everything is cognitive in that sense. And the separation approach, which is done means it misses out that vital bit of the you know acting together that synchronizing of those that all, all of those aspects so there's no separation in what we do and i think that's the damage that's done this continuity and flow and this ability to to grow as a player is interrupted when it's separated out as it's it has done uh, in traditional tennis well because mainly you you misdiagnose Yes. What's really going on? That's and the, and that becomes confusing. And so when something's confusing, now you're talking about the mental part of your interpretation of what went Can't on. Can't you also do another thing, Sterling? Sorry to interrupt you. What you can do is pass it from one area to it, the, the problem from one area to another. It's just like oh, well, it's not it's the the technical thing. Well, it's you no, know, it's his movement. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or well. He's losing not because of the technical or the, the, the movement facts. It's because you know psychologically it's not strong enough yet. Misidentification, I guess, would be yeah. probably the most damaging part of separating those two too much, right? So, I mean, this is this is I think 
the, the first feature of traditional tennis culture that we've managed to at least pose ourselves against. And I think it's interesting that it only became traditional tennis culture much later on for us, didn't it? I mean, because <laughs> we were very much focused on, you know, developing our own argument, you know, what was happening um, in with, with the competitive intelligence concept. So five years on, we've some idea of what this battle between the two competing concepts it's going to look like moving forward. I've got no, obviously got no idea what the outcome is moving forward, but at least we've got an idea about what it starts to look like at the moment. And we've been working on the other side of that divide in competitive intelligence. To me, I think the first big discovery, though, was that 70% of points are over within the first four shots. So points are short. That's it. I mean, that's the... Um, we talk about this in the book, how that is actually everywhere in tennis. It's at junior level and through to ATP tour. Weird. I mean, did, I mean, at the moment, we're still at this stage where people, you know, you, you people do recognise that and they're starting to, and they have done over the last five years, they've recognised it. You know, it's kind of like an interesting aside, isn't it? Like a supplementary point you might make at the end of doing all the important stuff like rallying and repetition yeah. and so on. Oh, and then... Well, well, Here's what a we've done is, though, is we've made this fundamental, right? That is the point. It's our number one principle for a reason. Points are short. And this is actually going back to around 2011, 2012, in your case, Sterling. Do you agree that that's our starting point, really, in terms of putting forward what comp- competitive intelligence is? It's, it's how I turned the table on what I was doing, right? Because I was coaching long before 2011. And I was doing it the traditional way, right? And then when I recognized back in 2011, independently of my own, eventually I met Craig O'Shaughnessy in 2015, but I'd already been doing data for four years on junior tour level and high school level. And uh, when I met Craig, it just confirmed what I had figured out on my own because I didn't really talk to anyone about this. It was sort of an epiphany that happened to me while on court training a couple of high-level juniors. And it is the starting place because it provides the ultimate context for moving forward and improving intelligently about what shots am I going to improve on? How am I going to improve on them? What about my movement? How is that affected between from shot to shot, either going to the ball or coming back and receiving the next ball? And so if you don't, if you don't start Yes. With average rally length and when the point actually ends on average, you are literally going down. You're going to open up Pandora's box about how to train. You're going to do all these things that are, they're good in a, in a sense, but if it doesn't have context, then it's, it's only going to cause more frustration mm-hmm. and more anguish, right? in the process of trying to get better. And so that's that's why we begin the book this way, is we, we hammer home that it's not a footnote, it's not just a sidebar that points are short. It is literally the is where you begin, right? And I have said this for more than a decade, the reasons why. I wrote about it in my first book, Seven On-Court Strategies, and back in when I published that in 2017. And so what you and I have done since then is explore 
the foundations that that book put forth, which is points are short. We have to wrap our heads around that and start training with that in mind Mm -hmm. first. Become consistent on the first two shots you hit in a point. Okay. I was literally just watching the Nito finals with, with center and Djokovic. And I, I sat there and watched the first six games. And I don't think, I think one point went to five to eight in six games. I mean, granted, and, and granted, these guys can serve well, return well, but that's, that's exactly what happens at every level if the competition is equal. And if it's not equal, it happens even more. Yeah, but the competition is always equal. It's always equal. Right. You, you, you know, you don't, you, you know, I'm not going to be playing Djokovic anytime soon. Right. But, but you're going to have this, you're going to suffer the same. Uh, consequences just on a different level that they suffer. And so that's why we begin the book there. And, and it is, it, it just goes from there. It, it, we expand this idea of why it's so important to recognize this and why it's so important to begin the practice court here. Yep. Um, from all else flows this idea that, and, and, and we say 70%. The averages are between 55 and 70%, somewhere in there. Um, I know on the junior, you know, it depends on how low you go. You know, in the 14s, boys, let's say it's probably gonna, it's probably gonna land somewhere around 60%. You start getting into the 18 boys um, or even ITF juniors, and you're you start to see it drift into the high 60s in college, it's high 60s and into the 70s and then on the tour level it's you know between 65 and 71 percent so so yeah so you have to begin there if you don't you're automatically going to get lost because because tennis is a complicated game to try to master and there is a lot going on but if you do not frame out your how you're going to become more competitively intelligent with this truth that has been well documented now. It's not just something Sterling saying or Craig saying. It is well documented among a lot of people around the world. And the data is important to provide the context. But there is a language of what we call a language of first strike. And that, I think, is going to be a feature from now on. This is the future of, of, of tennis and the way it's approached and the way we talk about it and think about it and perceive the way the game is played. I want just to turn to two things here, and that's the opponent and the and, and movement. As we developed competitive intelligence as a concept, we saw that the, the opponent was missing. And again, this is one of those concepts that people are going to find a bit odd at the moment, a bit weird, because they don't know what we're talking about. When we say the opponent's missing, a little bit of background to that would be, look, tennis has become very focused on ourselves as players. So we go out as a player and we're thinking about our own technique, keeping our own house in order. And that has, uh, that has two consequences. One is I'm constantly thinking of what I'm doing and there's a pressure on myself and my technique not to break down. And the second consequence is that I actually physically don't look at my opponent. We've done these tests several times. You can put on a different colored hat and say, what color hat did I put on? Oh, I didn't see. We don't look at our opponent because, Sterling, we are looking at the result of our shot. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it- <laughs> the 
the, so there's there's a perception problem or a problem. He's, he's absent really from our perception. He's not at the forefront of our he or she is not at the forefront of our thinking. That's what we mean by bringing the opponent back and what and, and the opponent gone has gone missing because what I mean, what do you have to say about that as a concept? Well, I think as coaches, and I was guilty of this as much as anyone on the planet, is we have we set up the practice court with the opponent non-existent. There's no opponent on the practice court, hardly ever. Okay. There's more of it that has been coming our way. And we're sort of, there's a shift that's happening within traditional tennis culture where there's more point play going on. But the emphasis is not there to, in my opinion, to actually shift in a very big way. Right. Because look, if you can release a video, and I've done this, I released a video on technique. Man, 30,000 views. I release a video on strategy and tactics. I'll be lucky to get a thousand people to watch that thing, right? Because it's not, it's not about like, how can I improve? So, well, it's yes. certainly not in the, the, the traditional tennis thinking. Well, by that's traditional, I mean, that's, that's I mean, an interesting point yeah. about traditional. Let's, can we define what traditional comes in? I'd say 1985 ish. Somewhere in the 80s. Yeah. 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 Because because before that, you know, it was intertwined with tactics, strategy, mental, emotional. Right. Well, what took precedence was was the tactic was the was the tactical the play. It was more about play. Right. It was more about play. So the opponent seeing your opponent and understanding why your opponent is so important to you. I mean, it is the reason why you're there. If you're competing, they are the reason why you are there. And so to start to see how your shots are affecting them, to to look up after you hit the ball and look towards your opponent instead of looking at your shot, that's the beginning stages. And so we say a lot more. We say a lot about that in the book. That's where we begin the first chapter, how we shift our thinking, our perception to that which is most important at the time it should be important. The second point there was the point about movement and closely related to that is this idea of of rhythm. And I think (laughs) tennis players crave this this idea of rhythm, right? Oh, I need to get into my rhythm and, you know, get get consistent. We associate rhythm with consistency and, and that's... That's what we're chasing, but we're always de- deeply frustrated because that, you know, we can't, I couldn't get into my rhythm today. Yeah. And why do you think that is? It's, re- it's so, it's so simple. It's so, it's in, right in front of our face. It's exactly what we just talked about. It's because points are short. Yeah. The point begins and then it ends. The classic, I love the classic. Quote that Craig O'Shaughnessy, right when the point is about to begin, it's about to end, right? Yeah. And we use that, right? Because it's so true. Is so the rhythm, the rhythm that we crave of hitting multiple balls in a row and and moving and hitting and flowing like Roger Federer, it just doesn't happen a whole lot in tennis, right? And so one of the things that we have found. In our discovery of the last five years, and then in writing of this book and dealing with players every day, is that there is a rhythm 
within the first strike stage of the point. There's a rhythm yeah. between the serve and the next shot, the S1 or the plus. Yes. Three. There's a rhythm between the return and the R1, the first shot after you play the return. Uh, that's, that's where we find the and rhythm. That's where, we, that's where we've got to find the rhythm because that's where the rhythm happens 55 to 70% of the time. So we have to master the rhythm, the movement between the serve and the, and the next shot the forehand or the backhand, whatever, the volley, the return yeah. and the R1, right? And then there's a, there, then there's a, the next stage patterns of play, five to eight shots. There's two more shots there that we've got to find the rhythm there. And so there's a rhythm that is still there, but we're not seeing the rhythm. We're not feeling the rhythm because we're not practicing the rhythm. We're not rehearsing that rhythm. We're rehearsing forehands and backhands and we're doing drilling and we're serving and then yep. we're serving at one after another and we're returning. And then we're resetting and returning, but we're not practicing the rhythm between the first two shots and then the next two shots. And then, and then how those two plus two shots link together to provide 90% of the points you're ever going to play in a tennis match. And that is a staggering thing to hear. If you're not actually counting, you know, like I did for four years and sat up to 3 a.m. in the morning, my wife thought I was crazy. We counted every single shot of every single match. Okay. And at the time, I had the largest data for junior players probably in the world. I mean, this was back when it wasn't even on TV, but I did this because I was trying to be my own devil's advocate. Like, is, is this possible? Like, is this, this is not happening. There's no way, right? That, that the average rally is going like this. And I, I was, I was like trying to disprove myself. And what I discovered is I can't, I, I couldn't do it. I could not disprove um, the fact that there's a rhythm there that we, we weren't practicing. So that's where the rhythm is. That's where we've got to master the rhythm between S and S1, R and R1, and then on to the next two. And once we do that, the rhythm of the extended rally, it just flows right out of that first rhythm that we've established. And that's, that's you know, in, in chapter one, we have that, that movement sequence, which, which I think is unique. The, the, you know, the way, the way we've, bi- we've built that, that the, the chain of movement and bring, bring back the, um, the flow or the consistency um, on the rhythm into the into the first two shots. Oh, here's, here's, you've got to say this one because I think it's really cool. How long does the present moment last? The present moment lasts around two to two point five seconds. And what's that's the present moment? That's the present moment because there's there's floating present moment, but the actual present moment that we interpret as right now lasts between two and 2.5 seconds. I'm right. And that's, neuro, that's neuroscientists. That's not yeah. Strother's yeah. opinion. That's something we kind of, we kind of happened upon. And, and it's something that's been confirmed over the last few years in neuroscience. And yes, that is, a, I'm glad you brought that up because I know your next question. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to ask <laughs> it. I'm going to leave it to another podcast. Yeah. So, so if we think about two to two and a half seconds, we've, we think when we hit a shot, it takes about one second or so to get to our opponent's racket. 
and about one more second to come back to us. Yeah. There's the present moment. I hit you a shot. You hit a shot back to me. And now that is a present moment. And so I talk about this in the first book about being in the moment, being in the present moment, being in the zone that. And so we've expounded upon that more in this book of the reason, actual reason why. And so when we, when I discovered the data over a decade ago myself, and then now we put it together 10 years, 12 years later, we're like, Oh my goodness, this is amazing. That two shots, if we, if we focus on our two shots, one, and then two, we are in the present moment because that's about how long it lasts. The working unit is the game for us. And again, this is almost entirely absent from any strategic thinking on tennis. By the game, I mean the actual game. So love, 30, 40, 50, game, the game. And isn't it funny that, that no one really talks about the game as a, as a unit in itself and how, and, how, and how we play? How do we move from point to point? What are the factors that play? And I think this is an, another unique aspect of the book is that we look at game craft as we could, uh, I think we could call it, with at least some justification. But you can see that this is an area that's going to be absolutely fascinating uh, moving forward. And I think uh, we, we, go, we, you know, we go very deep and offer a plan for players to move from point to point and improve uh, their decision-making. I first wanted to ask about the score in tennis because this is really, this is really funny. It's not, it's not just weird, but it's, it's, it's funny. The score in tennis, because the score in tennis is a strange thing. And this is where traditional tennis kind of operates in this. It, it mystifies things, doesn't it? And I think we've uncovered that. And we've come up with a beautiful alternative, even though I say so myself. Can you say something about that, Sterling? The, um, about the, the game as the unit and the, the mischievous aspect of the, of the scoring system. Yeah, it's mis- it's it's mischievous. The score is such an illusion, but we've accepted it. We've just accepted the fact that if you win one point, you're it's fifteen love, and then it's thirty love, and it's forty love, and it's like, what does this mean? Like, I'm not up forty points to zero. Like, but that's what my brain thinks. And then yeah. one more point, I've got gained right, and then we get to this forty all is deuce. Now we go from a, a numerical counting system to a to an, uh, you know a grammatical way of keeping score it's just so convoluted and it it preys on it puts so much confusion into our brain like and i get it like someone's going to say and and i get it they're going to say oh sterling's always been this way and that's just you know you get used to it and well, yeah but the problem is you really don't get used to it you do not get used to it you are constantly deceiving being deceived by this score and the reason why is because we've developed something called the momentum score, which is how many points have you consecutively won in a row? Have you just won one point? Have you won two in a row, three in a row? And we kind of stop there and reset back to one, two, three. And we talk about that in the book and the reasons why we don't go five, six, seven, eight in a row. But when it's 30 all, we'll believe it's tied. We believe it's tied. We've tied the score. You're not tied. The score yeah, but, is hang on, I'm gonna I'm just yeah. gonna pause that. Right? Okay, all right. You, the scores never equal in momentum scoring. 
no. that we say. Whereas in traditional scoring, it can't be anything else but equal at juice. Well, that, that, that has such a massive consequence. Oh, yes. In the way we approach gamecraft is huge. Yes. There that is, is no such yes. thing as equal in momentum scoring. When we just depend on the illusionary deception of the game score to make decisions about how we're going to play the next point, we are automatically setting ourselves up for disappointment, okay? And, or even further illusion that if we win the next point, right, we're either in more a diabolical position. And I know that sounds dramatic, but this is what, this is the kind of response we need toward this convoluted scoring system. Yeah. And it's always going to be there. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting that we do away with it. What I'm suggesting is there's a way to interpret it. There's a way to play the game score to your advantage, but you've got to use the momentum score to do that. And because your opponent, if they don't know what momentum scoring is, they're going to be playing to the illusion of the game score. Yeah. And if you're playing to the reality, the realness of the momentum score, you're going to be at an advantage. And so we talk about that in the book. And it's one of the, one of the things that I am very excited about sort of discovering in a sense of how it works and how it comes through. And we fleshed it out together and just the consequences of leaning, you know, letting the game score sort of overshadow what the momentum score is and how we can, uh, how we can flip that. And so, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big deal. So we begin with rally length. We talk about the illusion of the game score, 15, 30, 40 deuce ad, and then how we counter that. And so we're sort of painting this picture for you of here's what traditional tennis culture is about. And then here's what building competitive intelligence is about. And, and the contrast begins to sort of start to, to un- be unveiled, if you will. I wanted to look at one of the problems of the practice court in a little bit more detail. And it's one that traditional tennis throws up. So the practice court seems to have become somewhat of a a safe space in traditional tennis. Uh, Is that true? Do you think? I do. I think we use that. We've, we've sort of taken that phrase and applied it to something that we, we just see as obvious. Okay, but can I can I describe what I think happens on the tennis court with with this safe, safe space concept and something that you know I've I you know I've done I'm say I'd be guilty of it but I've I've certainly done it. So we have this look the the player goes to the coach and says you know I you know my lesson I think I don't think my backhand's working very well. You know, I think it's my backhand's the problem. And the coach says, "Well, yeah, okay, that, but let's 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 do that. Let's 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 have a look at the backhand." Of course, the coach then stands in the middle of the court and feeds feeds the ball from the basket. And, you know, thousand or so balls an hour later, the backhand in general that it's it's improved, hasn't it? It has to, no doubt about it. That that backhand in general. We're hoping. Okay, here's here's my problem number one. There's no such thing as the backhand in general. In a tennis match, right? It just nope. doesn't exist. No, nope. there's a backhand on the ad court on the return that exists. That's specific backhand. 
that there's a backhand that you hit that you have to run for that's hit into your A zone wide after you've hit your C so you serve, then you've got a wide backhand on your, your S1. You've got to you've got to deal with that's a very different backhand. None of them relates to what's going on that, that practice court with the coach and the player, coaching the backhand in general. So that's problem number one. I think problem number two is that this cycle, this loop, I call it, continues, doesn't it? So look, the coach can appear right to be this font of wisdom about the, you know, this backhand, this is what you do. Turn, you know, turn your shoulders and, and you and you do um, all the technical stuff. And then of course the player is in this safe space because look. The backhand in general, we can everyone agrees that their backhand can be better. Yeah. They don't know what the problem is in the match because they haven't done the data and the data analytics that we that, that we've done. It hasn't been identified specifically where the, the this the, the backhand problem exists. So if it's the backhand in general, then that's that's fine. That we can we can just work on that. And that's what they do. And uh, you know, after an hour, the player will go. Yeah, that's my backhand still. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. They go into a match, they lose. What was the problem? Oh, it's my backhand. And the coach says, yeah, we need to do some more work on it. Loop continues. And that's the safe space we have. We're not prepared, you know, we don't, we, because we don't know how to strong frame the problem and identify and separate problems. And that's really important. And by that, I mean, well, Saying the backhand in general, that you know, that, that doesn't exist. Is it the backhand there on the return? Is it the backhand wide? Is it the, you know, and so on? As how many different types of backhand are there? Well, <laughs> quite a few, but it's it's the, mean, context, it's the context at which you receive the backhand, right? It's the yes. movement, it's the movement along with the backhand. Well, look, there's, a, there's at least seven, at least, right? I did a video on that. <laughs> <laughs> I know you did. That's yeah, why I yeah it's, it is. I mean, it's 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 the context. It's it's moving back to the backhand after you hit a forehand. It's moving back to a backhand after you hit another backhand. It's coming forward. It's but it's it's the context of which it happened in the point, and that's why that's why building competitive intelligence. And, and I'm just going to go ahead and go there. It's why building competitive intelligence is dependent on identifying which backhand is being missed in a point more often than another, right? Because the backhand return of serve is not really a traditional backhand. It's a backhand return from deuce or, and then that's different from the backhand return from add. And the reason why it's different is because it's different because of the visual stimulation that you go through when you're standing on the deuce court and you're a right-handed player and they serve down the tee or position four, and you have to go into the court and hit a backhand from in the court in the middle, about the middle of the court and back through the middle versus on the ad side, you're going outside the court to retrieve a backhand that's been hit out wide and that serve has been hit out wide. And now you're returning a backhand from outside the court back cross into the court. So the visual stimulation there is completely different. And so rehearsing those two backhands is what's going to make you more competitively intelligent about how to play that shot. It's also going to make you more technically sound in each of those situations. And so just practicing a backhand in general or just blaming, oh, it's my backhand. Oh, it's my forehand. Oh, we just we need to work on your technique. And, and the safe space comes where 
you and the coach, that relationship you have is creating a safe environment whereby which you can improve on that backhand. And yeah. yet you have not challenged the very essence of, of why that backhand breaks down or why your backhand breaks down because you haven't identified which one and you haven't identified when, right? So that's why rehearsal of first strike patterns will take care of, it will identify which one of the back, which backhand is breaking down. And so when we do specifically, when we do backhand, backhand, first strike combinations, let's say you're returning. So you're on the do side, you return the backhand. And then now you've got to continue moving to your left. If you're a right-handed player, yep. you've got to continue moving left and then decelerate and then hit another backhand. That's quite different from the backhand, backhand combination from add which is you hit the backhand from add, you move back toward the middle, and then you have to reverse and come back to the next backhand. So that that movement sequence, backhand, backhand combination, it's the same combination, but if you're moving from different sides of the court, it's a different sequence of movement. And so you begin to see how players, their backhand breaks down. Well, we also identified not just the backhand broke down, but which one and how did it break down? And so now we have a blueprint because we've strong framed the problem of my backhand is breaking down. That's the problem. So we've strong framed it as which yeah. one and when did it happen and what were the consequences of, of how it happened. And then we go to the practice court and we rehearse it. And so that's why, that's why the art of winning and, and, and we've coined it the art of winning because there's an art to this. There's an art of strong framing and then interpreting and then and then intellectually accepting what has just happened. And then there, then, then comes back the technical part or the science of hitting the backhand. But now it's in the context of when it actually happened and why it actually happened that way. So that's why the improvement, in, when, you, when you sort of dive into the system that we've created, mm-hmm. and we, we call it a system because it is systematic, they have systematic properties. That's why you start to see real improvement in a player's backhand. And we've sort of, <laughs> I would say. it's been contextualized. Yeah. And we, because we blew up and we blow up the safe space, right? Yeah. We, we, we actually have an honest conversation with our players instead of creating this environment where they felt good about leaving, they felt good about hitting a better backhand in practice. And then they go off and play a match and they experience the, almost the same frustration they did before they had that lesson. Then they come back to us and we go, oh, it's okay. We'll, you'll get better as we continue to work on your back end. It'll prove. And it's like, and I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody. We actually create this safe environment for them to go, oh, okay, it'll be okay. You know, but yet we haven't dealt with the reality of the problem. And so that's why the book goes into these ideas and we'll continue to expand them on, on podcasts. So that's why I want to talk to you about the practical offering of, yes. the, of the book, the system that you alluded to. Yes. And this, I I think it's the the prize, if you like. This is the, it's just really good. The games. Yes. How did you come to make the games? I, it was out of a desire to say less because I coach mostly junior players. Yeah. And so I coach players anywhere between eight and, and 23 years old, right? Into college. And so I felt a strong desire to sort of 
pull myself out of the equation. And Mm -hmm. so in a sense where if something went wrong or something went right, it was not necessarily because of me, the coach. No. It was was because the player was able to figure it out and own it, own the adjustments, own the, the, the intelligence that they were building. Right. And it wasn't just because they did something I asked them to do and then they repeated it over and over again and they became proficient. And yeah, look how Sterling developed that player. Now, so I created the games because the games eliminated this sort of emotional barrier between me and the player. And if something went wrong or right, they weren't emotionally t- attached to, yeah. to what I did. Right. And so, because we can make all kinds of alibis and excuses of why something went wrong. So um, it actually happened. The games were birthed really out of coaching a player that came to me when he was 13 and he was ready to quit the game. And um, his parents were super frustrated and they traveled and did junior tournaments. And they were like, we just can't go to tournaments anymore because he just can't control himself emotionally and mentally. And so I went, okay, let, let me, let me have him for a month. And if I can't do anything, then, you know, I'll give you all your money back. And they were like, well, you can't do, you don't have to do that. I go, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, that's my challenge to me then. So, so what I did was I immediately, uh, he was notorious for throwing his racket and uh, when he was upset. And so I put him into one of the competitive intelligence games and it was pretty simple. It was, a fir- it was the first strike game and we started playing it. And then all of a sudden uh, we, I got four zero in the set. And he absolutely like one point the one of those points he's like chunks his racket across the fence, or across to the fence, across the court, and I just kind of stopped and calmly walked up and I said, "Hey, you know, just throwing that racket is that going to help you win this game more?" And he was just like dumbfounded, just just didn't have an excuse, right? He couldn't he couldn't blame the way I was coaching him. He had to deal with the game. The game was the the thing that was the pressure. Yeah. It provided the pressure and the and and the idea that he had to wrestle with the, how to win the points, and so the games they they the player interacts with the game and how it's constructed, and the games are directly related to what will happen in a match. What will happen to you mentally and emotionally in a match has been infused into how the game was created, the CI game. Yeah. And so that's what's so powerful about these games. They're not just games because I've played games. I've, I've created games in the past, but these are specific to how they were developed is this is what you're going to experience on the match court. And so the biggest revelation of that to us that they actually were working and doing that is the player feedback. Yes, this makes me feel and think exactly how I feel and think when I'm playing a match. That's because it's, it's the reality. It's the, the games almost have become more real than the actual yeah. match itself. I mean, that's, that, that's fascinating. I mean, in terms of the games themselves, what you've done, I think to sum it up is you're the first person to make the practice court more like the match than the match. That might seem, again, one of those weird <laughs> claims if you haven't read the book, but that's what's happened okay, here. And that is why they're called competitive intelligence games, because you're developing that skill, that, that intelligence 
whilst you're doing the games, but also what you're doing via data, okay, from the match. I mean, you you can do these games without the data, but at a certain point, you can introduce data and it starts to really strong problem frame. And we're on miles away from that coach in the safe space that we were talking about earlier. With a, you know, we're at the opposite end here. And what you do is you've taken data. So you take data from an actual match, bring it to the practice court to identify which games and which variations you need to do with the games that you then rehearse and take back to the match. Match, practice court, match. Brilliant. Well done. But that's what I would argue, I'd certainly argue, is, is, is the strength of what you've done. And just to, just to give it uh, that context for people who aren't familiar with the games, you can, and I advise anyone to do this right now, is go to artofwinningtennis.com where you can get three games now, right? You just fill out a form and boom, they go straight, straight to your inbox and you've got these genius games made by Sterling um, with some brilliant names as well. If you're British, you're, 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 you'll find them um, perhaps more entertaining. Um, right. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what you can do. So, I mean, we're, we're going to be running the uh, online course and that's going to be released in January where we're going to be going into much more depth in uh, looking at data, strong problem framing, and then how we use the games to then go back to the match and it's going to be a, the, the, there's going to be a lot more detail on that, but I, I do think that's a, a conversation that's going to be that's going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds because I don't know Sterling, I don't know about you, but I've I, I, you know there's no crystal ball here, mate, is there? <laughs> no. Nope. Um, but what what I think we've done here is it's going to be it's going to be fascinating 2024. It's been interesting the last five years. But now throwing this open, wow, to start to be able to change the perception, the thinking and the language and enter this new phase of against traditional tennis, the uh, thinking and tennis culture, that's going to that, be amazing. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I, we've taken the first steps in that journey. I'm glad it's been with you, Sterling. Um, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. But what do you think is going to be happening from now on? We'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see. I, I think that we have attempted to do the best, the best job we can do in putting out this book now. It's, it's something that, like you've said previously, it's taken about five years to construct it and to word it and to yep. get the ideas together so that it can, we, could, we could demonstrate to those who read it that this is something that's not, it's not something that has not been absent. In fact, everything we talk about has always been there. It's just been hidden. It's been hidden from plain sight. And we, it's been hidden because we've, we've allowed our attention and our focus to sort of gravitate to the extraordinary and the dramatic and the, and the things that are a part of the game, but, but they're, they're, just, they're just a part of the game. They're not, they're not actually how you construct your game, right? And so we'll see. I mean, we have a lot lined up, like Dan was saying earlier. We have the course coming out in January. We're working on that as we speak and have been. 
Uh, we're, I'm reconstructing the, the app, Tennis Map Play, and that's in, the, that's in progress of being reconstructed, and we'll launch that in 2024. We have a series of podcasts we're going to be doing, uh, even some webinars, and there'll be some free stuff. There'll, have, there'll be some paid stuff, um, obviously. Um, we'd love to give, I mean, I'd love to be a multimillionaire and give all this away for free, but, and I probably could. Um, but obviously we're trying to do the best we can with what we have, with the resources we have. And obviously when we have more resources, we can put forth more resources to you, uh, as a, as a viewer and as a part of the team. But I think the biggest thing is if you're interested in any of this at all, go to artofwinningtennis.com and then go ahead and put in your email and you'll get those, those three games. We we're just going to give those to you right off the bat. And, and, and they're just not the cheap games. They're not the, they're, they're we put some good games in there, right? We, <laughs> I talk about shot momentum and point momentum games. They're different types of games that develop shot momentum versus point momentum. And just, I think the biggest compliment that I think I've ever gotten is from players who go, Hey coach, I went out and I played a, yeah. I played my my first round in the tournament and I played secondo. I played the game secondo the whole match. And I obliterated my opponent. And I just thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. You just play a a game. And and the strategy was basically the same the whole match. And their opponent just had so much problem, so many problems. They just just could not handle it. But I thought that was, I thought that's, that's pretty good. And so we're learning. We're, we continue to learn this. This is an ongoing journey. I mean, I'm creating new games every week. And it's really the games are birthed out of the experiences of the players that, that we coach. They come back and they go, well, I'm struggling in this area. I'll get into patterns of play and I just can't seem to build from there. So we create games based on the need to help these players become uh, more intelligent, more competitive, right? And so, um, you know, the games are not things that I just sit or we're just sitting around thinking, hey, what would be a cool little game? No, these are these are born out of the reality of the experiences of players who are frustrated and and or either they're they're excited about what's going on. They go, hey, yeah. here's what happened. And so, you know, uh, we put the the names are trying to I'm trying to demonstrate what the game's all about with the name, and we try to you know, there's the depthness to the, what we're trying to do. There's not just a broad. We're not just expanding this way. We're trying to expand deep depth wise. And so, I would encourage you when you get the book, just don't read it twice. Like read it few times and then because it's there's some depth there that we have attempted to to communicate that is there's some hidden depth that you've got to you've got to read it and you've got to attempt so that's why we're going to do the podcast to sort of expand on what's already there and so we our best attempt was 253 pages uh but there's a lot more to it than that but hopefully everyone will enjoy the book and we can get the number one today. I would, that would be cool. That's going to be great. Let's do it. We're going to, we're we're going to um, bring things to close there. So thank you, Sterling. Yeah, please do that and go to artofwinningtennis.com. Thank you very much. And we will be in touch. 